If you look at chapter 8 with me, it's a very interesting portion of Scripture. Um, you know, you look at these first 12 verses, verses 1 through 12. Normally, I don't start this way with you, often going into canon. And how many of you know people know what autographs are? Not the kind you get from, you know, sports uh, players or things like that. But original, um, the original writings that were inspired and given. We know all Scripture is profitable, right? Timothy tells us that through Paul, writing through the inspiration revelation of Jesus Christ. But when we come to this passage, there's been scholars, there's been many people that have come up and said, see, this is the reason that we have a portion of canon that can't be trustworthy because this doesn't fit. I, I certainly say, well, who are you? Are you God? I mean, who, who's anyone to make that kind of claim? However, we do have to be you know, honest and say, well, in the earlier Greek manuscripts, the Nessie Allen Greek and some of the other earlier Greek manuscripts we have in translations, um, this passage is not directly in chapter 8, verse 1. It doesn't mean it's not later on in John or in another place. If you look at the Textus Receptus, if you're reading a King James or New King James, it's in all the early manuscripts in that manuscript. Do you know there's over well over 5,800, almost six thousand different manuscripts, and they only have a delta, a difference of less than one percent. No other work on earth like that. Just amazing over the six thousand years and what God has done. And so, um, listen, I, I share this because, look, apologetics. We need to understand these things. If somebody comes up to you and tries to convince you that the Bible's not trustworthy, God's not trustworthy, and they bring a passage like this, you now know you well. Have you checked the Texas Receptus? It's in there, you know. Yes, it may not be in the uh, other, ma other earlier Greek manuscripts, but it's infallible. It's the word of God. Every line, every jot, every tittle, it's from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to approach that. We need to understand those things. So I only bring that out because, again, if somebody should ever come up to you, I want you to have the hope or want to be able to give a defense for the hope that lies within you, as it says in Peter. Amen. Well, look with me as we left uh, last week. We came as far as uh, verse 1 in chapter 8. Certainly, we know it was the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the seventh day, the Feast of Sukkot um, booths. And uh, we had the eighth day ceremony, which was extra biblical that the Jewish people had begun doing the ceremony of the pouring of the water. Again, back to Numbers 20 and the water pouring out of the stone, Jesus Christ, you know, Paul tells us that rock is Christ Jesus. We read about that. We saw that. Well, here we are. The people had left and gone back to their homes and they were sort of thinking about it. They were praying probably what they had just witnessed, the fact that the religious leaders, even with all the censorship going on, they didn't silence Jesus. They couldn't silence God, as a matter of fact. Uh, it was not the time. It was not at the time of triumphal entry. And so as we come into chapter 8, verse 1 here, we see where he went and what he was doing. Now, it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down, and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something by which to accuse him. Circle accuse in your Bible. We'll come back to that. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear so when they continued asking him, he raised himself and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. 
And again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground or on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out by one by one, beginning with the oldest to even the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Kurios. That's our word, Lord, there. We'll come back to that. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you, and go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am. The second of the seven I am's that we have in the book of John, right? Uh, we read the first one, John chapter 6, verse 35. We saw in John chapter uh, 10, verse 7 will be the third great I am. Uh, the ten, uh, chapter 10, verse 11. The fourth, chapter 11, verse 25, the fifth, uh, chapter 14, verse 6, the sixth, and then finally in chapter 15, verse 1, will be the seven I am's. Why is that significant? Because in the book of Exodus, when Moses uh, was going to um, Genesis and Exodus, really, really think about it, because Moses was, well, who am I to tell you, these people, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. And that was the way he was to introduce himself to the people I am. And so these I am statements are very important. We'll talk about each one, but we're seeing the second of the I am's here. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So there's a whole lot going on in this passage here this morning. Again, it begins with Jesus um, leaving Jerusalem area. He goes to the Mount of Olives. That's across the Kidron Valley. Some of you have been to Israel. You know where I'm talking about. You go across the Kidron Valley and you go to the east. And that's exactly where Jesus had gone. Now, it says early in the morning. Again, some of this is before dawn. This is slightly after dawn. I'm not sure that's relevant. The point is early in the morning. The very first thing that was preeminent or prominent on Christ's heart was to go to temple because he knew at this time, remember the busiest time was during Aliyah when they would make pilgrimage to come back. One of the three required feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of those feasts. All men had to travel back to Jerusalem. So you went from a city that had thousands to a city that had millions overnight. This was at the end of the seventh, well, really the eighth day where they had just completed that ceremony of the water. We were just talking about that. And Jesus declared, you know, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit too, the living water. And he rises early and he goes to the temple. And that's significant because in the culture at that time, uh, because you had such an inswell of, of people coming into Jerusalem, they would come to temple because they were looking for teachers. They wanted to be disciples. They wanted to be learners of God. So they would come and they would look for rabbis or rabbonis, teachers. And so he goes, knowing this, God wants, you know, open invitation. He's going to go. And it says, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple. So he comes back into Jerusalem and all the people came to him. That's significant. I want you to underline that in the Bible because what we're about to read with this woman, I want us to recognize there are great groups of people in attendance here. And just to show how shameful what's about to be done is and, and the public display of sin, the way that, look, we never compromise with sin, but we certainly see the motive of these religious leaders, and this was not of the Lord. So the people came to him, and they sat down, and he taught them faithfully, right? This is, this is good. And it says, then the scribes and Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery. Now, we need to pause right there, because if you went into the temple, we learned just a lot from that, that verse there, verse 3. What part of the temple, what court in the temple was Jesus at? If you remember, there was multiple courts. The first court was the court of the Gentiles. Anyone could come to that court. 
right? Then you had the next court. Do you remember? That's the court of women, Hebrew women, by the way. The next court after that was the court of Hebrew men. And then so on and so forth. And you make your way closer and into the temple. So we know exactly where Jesus was at this moment. He was in the court of women, meaning that all the Hebrew men and women could come to be discipled by Christ. That was his intention. All the Hebrew men and women could come and be discipled. Now, he's teaching. As it just said here in verse 2, we can't miss this. He's teaching. He's handling the word of God. He is God. And he's certainly handling his word, and he's teaching them. He says he taught them, okay? And as he's teaching them, just let the video run in your mind for a minute. They see a woman being dragged directly in past the court of Gentiles, where even some of the, maybe the unbelievers had come to come to Christ, right? To, to come to salvation, to come to learn. And immediately this woman is just as, as a, a pawn, if I can say it that way, just being dragged right in front of everybody shamefully, no regard for her, you know, the privacy of her sin or what she had done, being dragged right like this, being brought into this court where other women could see and point, I know her, I know her. What, what did she do? What's going on here? And then all these people gathered and they interrupt the teaching of the word of God just so they could do what? Trap Jesus. It's a really brilliant plan, if you think about it, from the religious leaders. Diabolical by no means, you know, by, by certainly all extent, but brilliant in what way? Do you, do you see what they're doing here? They feel like they got Jesus either way. This is a no-win situation. What do I mean by that? Well, technically, they're not following the law. We'll look back at that, Deuteronomy 22, 22, Leviticus chapter 20, verse we'll, we'll go into those passages, I'll, I'll expound or exegete, we'll go, um, we'll look at this a little, a little further, but the idea here is that this woman is being brought in. Where's the man? According to the law, they were to be brought together. It also required that there be two or three witnesses. It's one of the, believe it or not, adultery. Some of you might have grown up Roman Catholic, yeah? When we, I grew up Roman Catholic, I can remember when you were Catholic, they would teach you there was something called moral or venial sins. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No such thing in Scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? All have sinned. Nobody's arrived. There is no such difference. Certainly, adultery is a sin that stains. But after all, all sin has a ripple effect like that. It's sort of viral and contagious, if it will. So the man isn't brought there, so they're not actually following the law that they're trying to get Jesus to enforce, though, by the way. Why were they bringing this scene in front of all the people to publicly discredit Jesus? Why? Then we know they already wanted to kill him. But why were they doing this? Because how could he get out of this one? That's what they're thinking. They think it's brilliant. Because if he says, you know what? Don't stone her. Ah, there you go, Jesus. Now you're guilty of breaking the law. You didn't follow the Old Testament law. You're not sinless. You have sinned, and therefore, you've been blaspheming God. If he says, stone her... Ah, there you go, Jesus. Now, there you go. You know what you just did? Has not the Roman occupation said that no one is able to carry out a capital crime without getting Rome's approval first because they're under submission of Rome? So now we're going to bring you to the Roman authorities, and you've just committed a crime before them, and they're going to bring an accusation and, and levy an accusation against you, try to have you killed or at least labeled as a terrorist. Either way... Their goal is to destroy the reputation of God. 
to destroy the reputation of Jesus, to ensnare him in this trap. And they think it's foolproof. And they think this is what they're going to do. And then there's God. And then there's God. So it says that he was caught in adultery. Why is that also significant? It's one of the few... Out of all sins, one of the few that actually would have been brought by the religious leaders. Why? Just think about what has to happen to, be, to bring this sin before a religious leader that way. First of all, according to the scripture, according to the Old Testament law, you had to have a witness. Whenever there was a legal or an accusation being made, which we know they broke all during Jesus' trial, by the way, there had to be two or three witnesses, right? It's called out in scripture. It was part of the law. Can't just be one person's word of mouth that way. The second thing, it's one of those sins that's sort of private. It's not exactly like anybody who, you know, I pray nobody's, but if somebody ever, you know, committed adultery, and again, this is not berating you here this morning, you know, certainly God's in, the, he's a God of reconciliation, okay, if there's repentance there. But if somebody's done, this is not something you're publicly telegraphing. It's sort of a private sin, okay? And so, that means for them to ensnare Jesus like, or this, pardon me, this woman like that, this is all set up because they had to know where she was going to be, where he was going to be. And this whole thing was going to be orchestrated ahead of time so that they could do what? Bring her in. Oh, by the way, where's the guy? All of this is a setup. You can, it's, when you know, when you know the Jewish culture, when you know, you put on that Jewish mindset, you understand exactly what's being presented here. And how God is using this as a teaching moment for all of us today. So she comes in. She's dragged in front. They have literally broken the law themselves. Hypocritical. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher. The religious leaders, right? So shameful, so humiliating. This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. That's why they had to say that. In the very act. Because otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to ruin it. But, but aren't they just using her? They don't care about her. They, they, they don't care about her. Now, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. How convenient that all of a sudden they remember what Jesus commanded in regards to the capital crime, and yet they forgot the other portion of it. Bring the man and oh, by the way, where are the two or three witnesses? Hold your finger here. Please turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 20. We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Everybody there? If you look at verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, both shall surely be put to death. That was the command, both of them, okay? And then he goes on and says, the man who lies with his father wife. He goes through different scenarios off of this same sin of sexual immorality there. Um, and he breaks that out and, and covers a whole, this is all in protection, right? That we wouldn't do these things. The, the clear point is, though, man and woman, right? Turn, in your, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22, please. A few books to the right. And I'd like you to look at verse 22. Verse 22. 
Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. It's interesting to me that Deuteronomy brings out the male as well. Leviticus said, hey, if there's male and female, bring them both. Deuteronomy begins with, if the man. They couldn't have missed this, right? They knew the Pentateuch. They were religious leaders. I mean, they'd studied uh, Torah and Pentateuch their whole lives at this point. So this is not an accident or something that's misunderstood or a misapplication. This is a deliberate disobedience at the cost of this woman's shame. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, you shall put away the evil from Israel. I don't, I don't think we could miss that. It's very clear, isn't it? Very clear there on what God was saying in regards to this capital. Aren't you glad you're under a better covenant? Amen. Or under a better covenant, certainly. Um, and I say this because what is the goal in any sin? God bringing these things to us through conviction of our sin. What is the goal? Is it to destroy a man or a woman or a human being? Or is it to draw them to the place of repentance and then to the place of reconciliation? God doesn't want to destroy anyone. God wants to reconcile them to himself. Certainly not going to compromise with sin. Sin is sin. We don't call sin stuff here, right? I know that's popular today. We don't do that. Sin is sin. We don't compromise with sin. We don't flirt with sin. Flee, as the Bible tells us. But many times, we blow it. And what I love about this passage is, as I'm reading this, because certainly I blow it, I love that God isn't in the business of disclosing and taking our sin like an etch-a-sketch that was written on your head this morning. How could you think this? How could you have done this? How did you have this thought? So that way when you walk around in public and everybody else, oh, what did you think about? Oh my, you thought about that this way? You were thinking about that? You did this? What did you do? Aren't you glad that our God doesn't publicly go and try to embarrass you, but privately he comes to you through your time of prayer and time in the word and reveals those things that aren't right, that are disobedient in an attempt to do what? To cast you out? To just get rid of you? No. To draw you into right relationship. Aren't you glad that that's the God we serve and the God we have? He's not interested in, in publicly. No, that's what a man does. That's what humans do. That's exactly what these religious leaders were all about. Again, no, no doubt this woman sinned. So did the man. This was wrong. It's revealing motives of heart here. Teacher, because of the shame flag, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us, as we just read, that such should be stoned. Such should be. Where, what, what about the man? Where, again, where is that? We, we, we're conveniently leaving that portion out of Scripture. Or the Scripture, we're leaving that out of the conversation. But we're focusing on what we want to focus on. But what do you say? Again, they said this testing him that they might have something by which to accuse him. They're not about restoration, are they? They're not about trying to restore men and women to Christ or to God. No. This is all about guile. This is all about drawing men and women to themselves. 
And unfortunately, friend, in 2,000 years, it hasn't changed. There's still men sitting behind pulpits drawing men to themselves, not to the Holy Word of God. That's why it's important to be in the Word of God. It calibrates us. We're Bereans. We test everything in the light of Scripture. We don't have to test a man. We don't have to trust a man. We trust the living God. His Word is holy. It calibrates us. And whether it's me or anybody else that ever tells you something biblically that's not biblical, you cast it out in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what you're to do as Bereans. It's more important for you to know the Word of God and to be able to judge with yourself, examine your own heart, and let the Lord do that work. Then I like the way Jesus said it. Is it better to fish for you or teach you how to fish? Amen. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. And this is truth and love here, right? As though he did not hear. Oh, oh, I love this. I love this passage, you know, because even though it was a capital punishment, he's trying to get him to reject, you know, he's, he's not compromising, but he's going to show compassion. Hold your finger here for a minute. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians. If you wouldn't mind, turn to chapter 4. Actually, I'm going to turn us back to chapter 2. Forgive me of Philippians. What I love about this passage is it speaks to the motive of heart. Look, clearly we're, we're to be invested in each other. If someone is sinning, we're to come alongside. We're to earn that right to pour into someone's life. But we're not to be on a sin hunt and we're not to be a legalist. There's nowhere in Scripture that's calling any of us here to do that. But we certainly aren't just to let our brother or sister just be consumed by their sin. We will come alongside them and, and love, earn that right through pouring into them, investment in them. Look what Paul talks to the church in Philippi, right? Specifically, he says, look at chapter two. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship with the spirit, I love that. If anybody's walking according to the spirit of God, if any affection and mercy, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let us be in unity in these things. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Is there anyone in here that's doubting what the religious leaders were doing was not for selfish ambition or conceit? But in lowliness of mind? Let each esteem others better than himself. I love that. Are we thinking the best of our brothers and sisters in here? And then when evidence points sideways of that, we come alongside them. But are, are we immediately on a sin hunt? Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Just think about that. It's so convicting, isn't it? It's beautiful. I need that. I need these scriptures. It's so convicting. Because I, I'm, I'm the first to say if my wife or my children or there's a need there or there's something going on, I don't have to be told twice. And I think any godly man or woman in this sanctuary here this morning, if there was something going on in your, what we will call immediate family, maybe even use the word biological, however you prefer to do it. If there was a need there or something wrong there, your attention is directly turned inward and no one has to remind you to be sensitive to that or to be concerned about that. 
But all of a sudden, for some reason, when we get outside of the four walls of our home and we look to our right or we look to our left, it's like all bets are off. Hey, you know what, man? You do what you're going to do, and that's okay, as long as my kids and my wife were okay. As long as we're okay, we got food, we're good, we're, we're, we're safe, we're healthy, then you know what? That's cool. You, that's you. This is me. Verse 4, let each of you look not only out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Is that not convicting? That's convicting. That's, a lo- that's real love. That's real love. Real love isn't telling us what we want to hear. It's not the honeydew. Real love calibrates us and teaches us when we get up. It protects us from becoming legalists. It protects us from being self-focused and not becoming others-focused. I'm so thankful for the word of God because the world's not going to teach me this because the world is going to say what's good for me is good for me. I got promoted. I don't know about you. I don't know what's happening in your life and your family. But as long as I'm good, I'm good. When you hurt, I hurt. When you're broken, I'm broken. The Bible teaches we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's not play Christian. Let's not play church. If you believe that and you believe in the eternality of the gospel and what Jesus Christ taught, we are going to spend eternity together. Why do we come in and put up the walls? That happens in the church. What about when we're outside the church? Then we think it's okay to put up the walls. It's not. It's never been okay. You hurt. You cry. You're broken. Good. Now you feel what Jesus feels. Now you know his heart. You don't have to make excuses for that. You don't have to protect yourself from that. Jesus saw this woman. He didn't condone her sin, but he saw how they were trying to humiliate her. I mean, just think about that. You don't even know if she was fully dressed or what they did. They they were so worried about getting to him in the middle of the woman's court that they probably, we don't know where the guy was. Certainly he was, it said in the very act, they were both there. So obviously they grabbed the woman. I don't know, did they even put a, a blanket or a shroud or something on her? dragging her for the courts of Gentiles. Can you imagine the Gentiles that were believers, proselytes, or even the unbelievers that were coming maybe to learn about God? And they said, this is how we treat? Wow, this is how, this is how God treats people? He just takes all their public sin and puts it on full display? Of course not. But that's what these religious leaders were conveying by taking this woman and doing that. And can you imagine her? Put yourself in her situation. I mean, the humiliation. First of all, you sinned, you're broken, you're, you're convicted by that. And then on top of it, publicly, now everybody around you knows it's broken. It's, it breaks your heart. It breaks your heart. Like I said, aren't you glad you don't walk around with an Etch-a-Sketch? I'm so grateful for that. They're testing him, aren't they? They want to accuse him, right? So what's he do? He gets on the ground and it says that he wrote with his finger. That word in the Greek there, we think right. How many of you heard, you know, I think it, it makes, I, I always use the term account in the Bible. I don't use the term story. I don't particularly care for that term. These are biblical accounts and historical accounts. But how many of you have heard that he got down on the sand or the dirt and began to write out all of their sins and different things and 
We have no evidence of that. As a matter of fact, this Greek word wrote here is actually the word in Greek to draw. Did you know that? This Greek word means draw. It doesn't mean, it's not the same word we would use for like alphabet. Or we, there's another Greek word for that. I'm not saying he didn't do that. He may very well. But when the Bible's silent, I need to be silent. My opinions don't matter. My obedience does. And so when I read this and it says he wrote, somehow he's drawing or he's doing something. Clearly they, they, they see this. They have that, that attention. And it, it, he's not even listening to what they're saying. He just goes right down in a natural way. And it says, so they continued asking him. And he raised himself up and said to them, he is without sin among you. Let him throw a stone first. According to the law, if you were the one that was making the, the accusation against the person that sinned, you were the one to take the stone and throw the stone first. So the beauty and simplicity of the brilliance of this is not only does he draw them back to the word for correct understanding, hey, if you want her stone, because that's what the law says, then by the way, which of you is bringing the accusation? You're the one to actually cast that first stone, not me. You're the one that apparently caught her in the very act. If you're following the law, follow the law. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, their souls. Hold your finger here. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, please, in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 6. This is God's heart in regards to how we are to handle and share burdens, difficulties, circumstances. How we're to treat someone. I mean, Galatia is one of the early churches you have in Scripture. It's one of the early churches Paul had planted by the leading of the Holy Spirit, by the leading of God. And as he, he was, apparently there was dealing some sin issue in this church. There was a guy that obviously, or a woman that must have been caught in some type of sin uh, to the point of where it had overtaken and it became obviously public knowledge is put in a letter here. We look at chapter six, verse one. It says, brethren, Galatians six, one, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, did you notice that? Any trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. In other words, how you measure out will be measured back unto you. It's kind of like, you know, how many people know, people call it the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our, what? Trespasses as we forgive others their trespasses. There's a connection there. Forgive us as we forgive others. Look what it says here. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. What is the point when you're caught in sin and, you, and you're, you're exposed to your sin and you're, you're living in sin? What does God want to do? He wants to destroy you? He wants to separate you? Or does he want to restore you? 
Paul is telling us through direct revelation from Jesus Christ, restore such a one, certainly after repentance. Repentance needs to be there. Once repentance is there, restore such a one. Reconciliation. That's the ministry of God, and it's our ministry. We have been giving, according to the scripture, the ministry and the gospel of reconciliation. He says, in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I love that passage. In my Bible, I say, look in the mirror. Maybe you got a little note in your side of your Bible. I say, look in the mirror before I think I arrive, before I walk in here and think I'm holier than thou. Because that fall is awful steep. And that ground hits and feels pretty rough. The reality is, is not one of us walked in here and arrived. There's not one of us that isn't blowing it right now in some way or another. We're just not. All have fallen short of the glory of God. He says, don't think of yourself more basically more highly than you ought. Because when you do that, it's very easy to look at somebody else in their sin and say, boy, it looks really, really good on you. My sin looks so good on you. You ever notice when you're talking to somebody, you can help and counsel them sometimes, and you're relating to them through your experiences maybe? And I always thought that was sort of interesting because obviously if I'm going through it and I'm still struggling with it, I'm probably not the best person to give counsel at that moment because I'm not through it and I haven't come out the other side yet. Sometimes I'm in the, you can be in those situations and you're like, you need to just stop that. You need to just, do, which is true. As though we forget that sanctification, you know, salvation's in a moment. Sanctification's a lifetime. Again, Jesus isn't compromising here. He's not saying, yes, woman, go ahead and keep sinning because it suits you. And, you know, we're in the process of sanctification here and it's okay. No. No, and that, and that needs to be very clearly said. He is in no way condoning sin or compromising with it. For if anyone thinks of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But he let each one examine his own work, and when he will, sorry, when then he will have, <coughs> excuse me, rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. We're called to do that. We're called to really bear each other's burdens. How many of you guys think it's the pastor of the church that's supposed to call everybody and see how everybody's doing and check in on them? Huh? Come on, you can be honest. How many of you think that's the pastor of the church's job or calling? Need I remind us, Peter teaches us we're a royal priesthood, a precious people. We are the hands and feet of Christ. Every one of us has a responsibility to do that, to check in on our brothers and sisters. It was never something, even, even under the Moses model, even looking in the Old Testament scripture, even Moses, Jethro, his dad says, Moses, you can't take upon all this on you. You can't do it. And so they began to set up an orderly structure so that people could be ministered, almost creating what I would call like a small group deal, where you are responsible for these groups, you're responsible for this group, everybody gets ministered to. But so often in churches say, the body of Christ, I think they, that maybe people look at the pastors or the elders and say, you, you, but that's, you, you're like anointed, you know? And so are all of you. And so are all of you. So am I. We're all together. We have different offices, different responsibilities maybe. But each one of us has the opportunity and the privilege to bear each other's burdens. 
to laugh with people, to cry with people, to meet them where they're at and draw them to the feet of Christ for healing, spiritually speaking, and physically if needed. Isn't that beautiful? That's God's design. It's beautiful. It's the body of Christ. I'm so in love with the Lord. I'm so in love with the Lord. Look, look how he, he goes on. Because he, he knows he's stooping down. He's drawing or writing, as it says in the Greek. And so they continue. And he says, hey, which one of you, you know, throw the first stone? And again, he stooped down. And I like this. Again, you know, he's. And those who heard it being convicted. You know the difference between convi conviction and condemnation? Convictions from the Lord, condemnations from the devil. Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Convictions when you and I are, or get a check in our spirit, man, I shouldn't have done that. I blew it. And the Lord is directing us back to him, and it's gentle. And when a brother does that or a sister does that, they approach us, there's a gentleness to it. Hey, man, I'm not thinking more highly of myself. I get it. Any one of us could do that same thing. God doesn't want that for you. God wants better for you. And through love, we direct them back to the foot of the cross, back to the feet of Christ. I try to publicly expose them. Condemnation, though? Well, the devil will condemn you, and then, and then he'll keep condemning you even after you repent and get right with God because he wants to destroy you. He doesn't want you to be a worshiper of God. He can't stand it. He can't stand when you glorify God. So what does he do? He comes in and he works through guilt, depression, anxiety, and sorrow. All of those things are wrapped in condemnation. I had Cindy in the office at one point. I was, I was kind of making a diagram for this for help people because when I was going into counseling, a lot of times I've met with several of you and certainly my door's always open and the pastor's doors are always open here. We're here to love on you and, and be with you and live life with you. And a lot of times I started making a diagram because a lot of times when we go through a very difficult storm or a circumstance in life, it's very difficult in that moment to determine which one is this. Is this conviction or is this condemnation? You know what I mean? Have you ever, or is it just me? Maybe it's just me. But I, 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 in that moment, I'm like, man, I'm overwhelmed. I don't take a read step. I don't step back and take a read and go, okay, okay. Because I'm, you know, I'm beside myself. Everything that's going on may not even be in my right mind in that moment because of justification, trying to justify my, you know, my defenses and all these nonsensical things. You pray for me. You pray for me. I pray for you. We can pray for each other. But condemnation is where the devil loves to come in or your own flesh and just, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you took that. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you looked at that girl again that way. I can't believe you looked at that guy that way again. You know, conviction is like, don't do that. Okay, Lord, sorry. You know, forgive me, Lord. That's not what I want. I want your best. I don't want this. Condemnation is you've repented. You, you seek the Lord. You, and then it doesn't let up. It's like it just wants to take you down into the point of where you literally start to get so sick to your stomach, you want to vomit. Because you're just emotionally moved to the point. And the devil, he doesn't, he is... Well, we just read, he's brilliant, isn't he? You saw what he did to try to ensnare Jesus here, working through these religious leaders. You don't think he wants to take you and I down? Your families, your loved ones? How many of you got prodigals? Some of you got prodigals in your families, yeah? People you're praying for that aren't walking with the Lord today? Don't you give up on them. Don't you quit on them. Jesus hasn't quit on them. Because I'll tell you right now, he's doing double overtime on them. He's not only 
condemning them. Jesus, excuse me, is convicting them. But the devil, I mean to say, double time, is, is condemning them. Condemning them so that even if they want to turn to God, they think, oh, God would never take me back. Or God would never, God doesn't love me. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not at all what we read in Scripture. God is faithful and true and just. And again, reconciliation is his purpose. So they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. We, we really don't know exactly what he wrote. Maybe when we get to heaven, we can ask for the DVD of that one. Put it in, watch the archive, right? Or I don't know if it's VHS back then. I don't know. But, and Jesus was left alone. They all just kind of backed out of there. And the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Notice he said, did no one, he didn't say, did anyone convict you? She's afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid? She just got pulled out of a house, certainly shouldn't have been doing what you're doing, and then you've been just publicly exposed in front of everybody. You barely stand up, probably. You know, she's standing right there. I mean, I mean, what, wouldn't we try to, like, I mean, you ever seen, like, a turtle pull her head? How far could she try to get in her own body? I mean, she just literally feels publicly humiliated to the point of where, and she looks at the master, Jesus. This is a beautiful example of Jesus, right? He shares this amazing grace, but, but in the right heart and how to deal with it. People come to this passage. I'm always concerned, and they'll quote it, and they'll use it as an example of, you know, well, I can do whatever I want. It's called antinomalism. It's grace upon grace. In other words, I can sin so that grace abounds more. And Paul writes about that. Well, for our time, we're at our time today, so I won't be able to go into that. But next week, if the Lord should tarry, we're going to go on to Romans 6.1 because I need to bring the full you know, aspect I, we talked about today, Philippians, we looked at Galatians, we saw how God wants us to approach our brothers or sisters that are in error and the gentleness of heart to do that. We also need to understand what God has us for in Romans 6.1, which teaches us that because we're born again, we have victory, we have victory over sin. It's not like before, we have victory over sin. I'll talk a little bit more about that, but he says, he has no one condemned you? She's afraid, right? And she said, no kurios. Why do, why do I love that she says, hold your finger and turn to John 13, 13. Please, just quickly if you can with our time here. It's only a couple pages over to your right. Jesus, while he's washing his disciples' feet, he's with the apostles, he's with the A-team, okay? Look at verse 13. You call me teacher. I mean, it's rabbi, rabboni. Um, and what? You see that there? Kai. That's Kai. means and in the Greek. What does it say there? Kurios. You call me Lord. The apostle. So we know that even Jesus is saying, you call me Kurios. You call me Lord. How, some of you have an NIV, right? I, I tease. I, I don't mean it. I said it in first service. Somebody came up to me. They're like, what should I? I'm just teasing. I call it the non-inspired version. Because if you're, if, and I, I'm having, please don't be offended with me. The, the reason I say that is because if you look in the Greek translation in an NIV, in your Bible, if you're here this morning, what's it say? No one, sir. That's not what kurios means. Kurios in the Greek means Lord. That's a big deal. I believe this woman got saved. She calls him master, Lord, just like the apostles referred to him. Teacher, Rabboni, Kai, kurios my teacher and my Lord. This woman looks at him and she says, Master, Lord, not, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Good to meet you. 
No, I mean, there's a lot in the Greek. We don't want to lose that. Please don't write me letters. We, what we use, we use the King James or New King James. We predominantly use New King James here. But let's read the Bible. Have the Bible. I just want you to have your Bible. But just be aware of some of these things. Be aware of these things. And look what he says here. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Romans 8, 1, right? And he says, go and uh, go ahead and just keep doing what you're doing because we know I love you and it's, I love you. So just go ahead. No, my Bible says, he says, go and sin no more. You know what he's saying? Go be holy. Go be set apart for God. Go be holy. Go sin no more. He didn't compromise one bit, did he? And yet we see a perfect example. You've heard me say it's truth and love. You've heard me say that, right? And I say you can't separate the two. The reason I say that is because all of your scriptures from the very beginning, bar, right in the beginning, he created love and truth, light, truth, love, which inspired light. You can't separate them. They're, 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 not, they're mutually exclusive. You can't separate them that way. He says, sin no more. Hold your finger here. I know, turn to Ephesians 4. Pastor, are you going to keep stringing pearls? No, the Lord is. Four, chapter 4, let's look at verse 17. I want us all to understand this because I know there's somebody here this morning going, see, I can keep sinning. Because he said, he said, salvation's in a moment, sanctification is a lifetime. I agree with you that we got saved, those that are saved here, I pray. The work that Jesus Christ did on the cross... I sent him to that cross. It just wasn't the Jewish leaders or Rome. I sent him there. And I've sent them there because of my sin, my past, present, and future. But God also went to the cross for another reason. And that has to do with my nature. All of you, like me, were born into, we use the term, an endemic nature. Adam. We're born, right? And we're born into sin, which is why we read in Romans 3.23 and 6.23, all of sin told short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. Very clear. There's no mincing those words. God lays it down hot. But if we're not careful, we can, we can either begin to try to excuse that or manipulate that, if I can say it this way. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, again, in the context of what we were just sort of reading here, and I, what I love about this passage is, is that God's desire, again, he wants us to turn away from our sin. Part of the work Jesus Christ did on the cross is I'm a new man, I'm a new creation. The old things have passed away, all things have become new. And the same thing has happened for each and every one of you. You've been given a new nature. You're no longer under the endemic nature. You're now being conformed to the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what awaits the born-again believer. But again, it's a process of sanctification. Look in chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, thus saith the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Remember in Scripture, they're either a Jew or a Gentile. Gentile generally referring to an unbeliever, not someone that's not just Jewish. That's possible, but that's not the context here. He says, no longer the way the Gentiles walk, the unbeliever walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, 
being alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with, greed, with greediness. But you have not so learned in Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your what? Former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. He says you put that off. And being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the plan. That's the plan. That's what God's doing. What we and our call, and the musicians can come forward, by the way, what our call and plan in this is to turn around and to be willing to surrender and submit and say, okay, God, your will, your way. And so as we look at these last passages back in John here, just his last few, he says, where are your accusers? She said, no one, curios. So Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. You go and sin no more. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, and this is the people, the crowd, all the people are witnessing this, that had come for the teaching in the morning or in the early hours. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. What's that mean? Unrighteousness. But have the light of life. Isn't that beautiful? I am. It's a claim to deity. Don't let anybody ever tell you that in your Bible, Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. They'll say, oh, he claimed to be Messiah, but he never claimed to be God. You bring him right to this passage and say, no, Jesus absolutely claimed to be 100% human and 100% divine. He is God. Amen? Amen? You can stand. We'll worship, if you're able, we'll worship our Lord. And um, next week, if the Lord should, should tarry, we're going to go back into Romans 6.1. We're going to look a little bit about our victory in sin. And the fact is, if we sin now, we don't get to say the dog made me do it. I can't say the devil made me do it. I got to look into my own heart and say, God, because of your work on the cross, I have a new nature and I've been freed for sin. So when I sin now, I sin of my own free will. And therefore, God, I come to you and I ask your forgiveness and repentance. And God says he's faithful and just to forgive those that come to him. We have a great God. Father, we love you, Jesus. We thank you for your holy word. Lord, thank you for renewing our minds in these things and calibrating us and getting us away from the world's thinking, Lord. Your words are simple and true, so perfect. And Lord, while man or woman may strive to, Lord, trap you, trap us, God, you have already brought us from death to life to eternal life, as a matter of fact. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, anybody who believes on you, worships you as their Lord and Savior, God, you'll save them, you'll resurrect them, and you'll bring them to everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus Christ. There are no words that we could ever begin to express our love and gratefulness and thankfulness for salvation. Certainly, we pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, whatever denomination, whatever they're in, Lord, let them see the purity and the truth of you, Jesus, of you, God, our Father, and your word and the holiness of it. God, do that work in our hearts as we prayed even before we began this morning. Seal it in our hearts now that you've tilled up the rough ground. You created fertile soil. 
Produce that fruit, Lord, 160 and 30-fold, we ask. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus Christ. Receive our worship now, Lord. And all God's people pray. Amen. I love How good is our God? God is so good. <laughs> Have a beautiful week in Christ Jesus. I love you guys. The pastors and elders will be up here. If we can do anything, if we can serve you, please let us know how. Love you guys. God bless you.